You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture lesson this morning is from Psalm 80. This psalm reads in its superscription for the director of music to the tune of the lilies of the covenant of Asaph, a psalm. Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. O Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You've fed them with the bread of tears. You've made them drink tears by the bowlful. You've made us a source of contention to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its boughs to the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and the creatures of the field feed on it. Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will turn, we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us, that we may be saved. And our text is verse 19, which corresponds also with verses 3 and 7. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us, that we may be saved. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need restoration. Now, sometimes good Reformed people, when they hear someone say that, recoil against it because such a sentiment has so often been expressed in the service of revivalism. Beating that revivalism drum is tiresome to God's people who really need, these same good reform folk would say, just a lively administration week in and week out of the ordinary means of grace. Isn't what we need simply God to empower these means which He has appointed in the preaching of the Word, the administration of the sacraments? Indeed. Amen. That's precisely what we need and exactly what I mean when I say we need restoration. We don't need another Pentecost 
are all sorts, as many would have it in the broader evangelical world, of excitement and spiritual power as some would understand it to be manifest. No, we are the church that has experienced Pentecost. And in that sense, we are the Pentecostal church. We need simply, but profoundly, that wonderful work whereby God empowers the means that he has appointed so that we draw nearer to Christ and partake more fully of the life that we have in him as we come to the word, as we hear it preached especially, as it is taught among us, as it is read in our families and even meditated upon privately, and as we come to this word signified and sealed at the table of our Lord, at the font as baptism will be administered in the afternoon service. In all of these, we need God powerfully to bless that which is appointed. But surely to suggest that we need restoration like these folk in Psalm 80, you might say, misses the point, doesn't it? Those folks were obviously under some sort of particular attack. They were in some extremity that caused them to cry out, as we read in the words of this psalm, and particularly as is repeated in verses 3, 7, and 19. They felt their need most keenly as God's hand was heavy upon them. To be sure, sometimes are more trying than others. We all know this, don't we? We have times in life that are quite trying, whether it's the loss of a parent or a mate or a child, financial difficulties south of the border. There's a few things going on, isn't there, at Wall Street a great deal of turmoil, and I I think there's even some sort of an election or something coming up soon. Many things are going on, and we can say, yes, there are times of, of, of challenge, of difficulty, but here's what I want you to see. The need that we feel most keenly in times of trouble is simply a reflection of what is truly there. Here's what I mean. During good times, our truest and deepest need is often masked and not felt so sharply. It isn't the case that our need of the Lord is ever truly greater. Rather, sometimes we see it more clearly. Our need is always at the profoundest and deepest level for a vital relationship with God in Jesus Christ. And we may see it a little more clearly if we're in a foxhole and bullets are whizzing over our heads. But what we see in those moments of trial is just what's always true. But we see more clearly now. And so we could say it is not the case that our need of the Lord is ever lesser. Our need is ever to have God to restore us, to cause his face to shine upon us so that we may be saved. We always need, we say is our theme, restoration. And so we see that here, first of all, in the request for restoration that we see in these verses 
in the A section of verses 3, 7, and 19. And then in what I'm calling the rights, R-I-T-E-S, you don't have this in the bulletin before you, but the rights of restoration as in verses 3b1 and 7b1 and 19b1, and then the results of restoration, as we see in the very last part of these verses, the request for restoration, the rights, R-I-T-E-S, of restoration, and the result of restoration. The request for restoration was upon Israel's heart and lips here in It should be upon ours. These times, the psalmist, three times the psalmist sounds that refrain as we say, Restore us, O God. Or restore us, O Lord God. Or restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Or God Almighty, depending on your translation. Do we need restoration? Yes, we do. We need restoration. We need sanctification, another name. We need continuous conversion, which is what Jonathan Edwards called sanctification. Do we not need to turn to God from our idols to serve the living and the true God? We ever need to do this. As Calvin said, our minds are idol factories producing idols of which we ever need to be repenting. But as we said, was not Israel here under some particular extremity? Isn't there something going on here? Well, we don't really know exactly what's going on. We don't know really what the occasion for this psalm is. It is a psalm of Asaph. And like most of of those psalms of Asaph, this one has connections with the northern kingdom, to be sure, calling Israel Joseph, which is an indication of addressing the northern kingdom, listing the tribes of Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Perhaps, Mays suggests, uh, these names and the distress that's described in verses 5 and 6, 12 and 13 and 16, reflect these disasters uh, that came upon the northern kingdom in the late 18th century or some other time of a concern for the state of the northern kingdom. Well, whatever the original historical setting of this psalm was, the psalm in its continued use belongs to the repertoire of the afflicted people of God as they make their way through the troubles of history. And so this is an encouragement to God's people, to you here in B.C. in late 2008, as you make your way as God's pilgrim people, through this world. We might say that this has indeed been a a particular comfort to God's people in trying times. Are these trying times? Aren't we always battling the devil, the flesh, and the world? Aren't you battling the devil, the flesh, and the world? If you're not battling the devil, the flesh, and the world, you're succumbing to it. There's no option. Either you succumb to it or you fight against it. And as you fight against it, you sense that struggle. You sense these difficulties. You are made to cry out, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. This request for restoration is simply the cry of the already renewed heart for God to continue that work that He has begun. It's the cry of those who are of God's flock 
and who are God's vine. Notice those are the two chief metaphors used in this psalm. God's people seen and depicted as God's flock and also as God's planting or vineyard or vine. We hear this cry then to God as we recognize ourselves to be God's flock. We hear this as a cry to God, the great shepherd of Israel. It's a cry to tend the flock, to spare us from the wolves. This is the language of the psalm. To feed us not only with tears and to leave us exposed at our laughing foe, but rather to nourish us, to care for us, and to provide for us. Do we not have as God's weak and needy people as we make our way along this sin-cursed world that hates our Savior? Do we not have this need? Do we not always need to cry out in this way? So we cry out to the great shepherd as those who are the flock, and we cry out as the vine to God, the great vine dresser. Another metaphor used a number of times in Scripture, in Jeremiah, in Hosea, in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, this Metaphor is used frequently, uh, and the prayer here is that God would tend the vine, that he would restore the walls. The picture here is of walls broken down, and wild animals have entered into the vineyard. And so the prayer is to repair these walls, to cast out the wild boars. In fact, the Bishop of Rome, Leo X, at the time of the Reformation, in his papal bull whereby he excommunicated Martin Luther, used this very language, Exorge Domine, O Lord, cast out this wild boar from your vineyard. And he was speaking of Martin Luther when he said, cast out this wild boar. But here the people of God do pray, cast out these boars who have entered and Praying, praying that God would repair the vineyard, that the vine may flourish, that the flock may be fed and cared for, led to green pastures beside the still waters, nourished, and that the vine would flourish. And so here's the picture, and here's the prayer as we cry out to God. And so we request We beg, we do not stop saying as long as we have breath. And this is why it gets repeated, this refrain of revive us as it's put sometimes. Save us, but in these three places, restore us, O God. Crying out with these words, particularly that we see in verses 14 to 17. Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and watch and see. Watch over this vine. The root your right hand is planted. The sun you've raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man. At your right hand, the son of man, you have raised up for yourself. This is our prayer. This is our prayer. God does desire graciously to restore us. And so let us cry out. God is more ready to answer us than we are to call upon him. So be encouraged to call upon Him. Cry out, restore us, O God. Notice here that God gives us life. He graciously restores us, secondly we see, through the rites of restoration. You might be thinking, what on the earth do you mean by the rites of restoration? And where is that in this psalm? I'm glad you asked that. 
He restores us through the rights of restoration, which is to say the means of grace that he empowers. Hold on with me. I'll show you where it is. The rights of restoration are suggested in verse 19b. The psalmist has cried out, Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. And then he says this, Make your face shine upon us. That cries out for explanation. Make your face shine upon us. Where do we hear this kind of language? And what does it mean? This petition, this cry to God, make your face shine upon us. Suggests, doesn't it, the ironic benediction. Number 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. This prayer for the face of God to shine upon us is seeking the blessing that's placed upon God's people by the priests with upraised arms. And we here beg this for ourselves. You see, the priests, as they would raise their arms, and you know, when Aaron and Hur helped Moses lift his arms, as it were, in blessing upon the people, they triumphed. And when his arms were lowered, they were defeated. We need God's blessing in order to triumph. And so we pray, restore us, O God. That's our request. And the content of that request, if you will, is cause your face to shine. And what does that mean for him to cause his face to shine? It means for us to enjoy the blessing that is invoked when the priest raises his arms and pronounces such a blessing. What it means is for us to enjoy that powerful work of God in our own hearts and lives so that we are transformed, enabled to die to sin and to live to righteousness. This shining, this discussion or talk about Shining also occurs and is connected in verse 1 with that of the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. Notice here, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, verse 1, shine forth. We know that there was on that Ark of the Covenant the blessed presence of God among the people of God, the Shekinah, which shone forth there, testifying to all that God was not with the nations, but He was rather with His people Israel. He was with His people Israel in blessing and in power. And as they went forth looking to Him alone and trusting in Him, He blessed them. And here was the the, the symbol of that blessing and the, the glory cloud that accompanied them and that filled the presence of the temple and that shone forth, uh, enthroned between the cherubim where God was in His presence. This speaks, we say then, of God's royal presence among us with power and blessing, the defeat of all His and our enemies 
as that Shekinah shining forth on and from the Ark of the Covenant. What does this all mean for us? We're not Israel of old. We don't have an Ark of the Covenant. We don't need Indiana Jones to look for it. We don't have such. We have the blessed presence of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. As God's presence, and that's what the upraised arms of the priest who said, let his face shine upon you. That's what the Ark of the Covenant glory presence meant. The blessing of God in power upon His people. We have such in new covenant dynamic. As God's presence was especially powerful for blessing in the glory cloud, so He is with us now in a far greater way, in an inner way. Jesus our Lord spoke of this particularly in His upper room discourse where He promised the blessed Holy Spirit. And He said, He will come to you. John 14, 23. And we, Father and Son, will take up our residence with you. How so? Father and Son take up residency in the people of God corporately and personally by the power of the Holy Spirit. The blessed Holy Spirit given a new covenant power at Pentecost, coming into the soul, into the heart and life, coming into the very congregation of the people of God, means that everything in fulfillment that was there when the priest said, let his face shine upon you, that the, that the glory cloud shone forth, that it meant all of this is there in our Lord Jesus Christ coming to us in and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Christ who becomes a life-giving Spirit. Very profound and mysterious expressions here we find in the New Testament. But we know that God's presence is among us by and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the prayer, let your face shines for us means bless us by the Spirit of Christ. And so you can see the importance of praying. Restore us, O God. Bless us by the Spirit of Christ. In the preaching of the Word, anoint the calves of the lips. Anoint the lips of the one who speaks. Circumcise and open the hearts of those who hear. Grant the minister speaking and grant the auditors hearing and listening. Let your face shine, we can pray. You ought to pray Every Lord's Day evening before the Lord's Day, every Saturday evening, tomorrow, gracious Father, restore us, we beg you, let your face shine. As the Word is preached, let your face shine. As we come to the table, let your face shine. As we come to the font, let your face shine. And some may say, why get so worked up? Won't it just happen by the work being done? Doesn't, doesn't the preaching of the Word and the administration of the sacraments just automatically bestow grace? 
There are those who believe that. They're called Roman Catholics. That's the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. That's never been the teaching of any Reformed or Protestant church. That the mere act of preaching or the mere act of baptism automatically brings the blessing. We must seek the blessing. We must wait upon God for it. We must cry out to Him for it. We must, when we come to hear preaching, be praying. And as we're hearing preaching, pray, let your face shine so that the Sovereign Spirit may do His gracious work in and among us. And so we say, as we pick up the Word, as we read it in our families, as we come before God in prayer, in every element of corporate worship, let your prayer and your cry be, let your face shine. Cause your face, gracious God, to shine upon us. Bless us, O Lord, or we will not have blessing. Bless us, or we will not have blessing. The result of such requesting restoration and observing the rights of it, a lively exercise of the means of grace, the result of all of that, we say thirdly, is simply that we may be saved. That's what we see here, isn't it? Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us. What's the result? That we may be saved. That we may be saved. How are we saved? By Him. Why are we saved? Because we're His. He loves us. Notice verse 17, particularly here. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. The Son of Man you have raised up for yourself. Yes, as commentators note, the congregation as part of identifying itself as God's possession, the congregation in identifying itself as the possession of the Lord calls itself here the man of your right hand. Benjamin, that's what Benjamin means, son of the right hand. And so the congregation has and enjoys this favor. But this reference here, to let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the Son of Man you have raised up for yourself, doesn't ultimately refer to the congregation. Rather, it refers to the One who is enthroned on high, who came below and who secured the salvation for which we cry. There's no other way to be saved than by the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the true Son of Man who has been raised and glorified. You see, the Father has raised up the Son of Man and His hand rests on Him, which speaks not only of His resurrection, but His ascension and His session at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it is because of Him and all the work that He has done for us And he had completed that work, signified by his sitting down, his entering his session. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. He prays for us. And this is why God's blessing is upon us. 
because His hand rests on the man of His right hand, the Son of Man raised up for Himself. Yes, we fail. If God dealt with us according to our iniquities, we would perish altogether. But the reason we can cry out to Him, restore us, O God, cause Your face to shine that we may be saved, the reason we can do this and expect and know for certainty that He will answer us and answer us truly and positively is because Jesus Christ has secured our everlasting salvation. And we have hope in Him. And we come in Him before the Father, secure forever. This is why, as verse 18 says, we are continually restored and not, and will not turn back. Notice verse 18, then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. God gives us life. We call on his name time and again. We need restoration and we have it in our Lord Jesus Christ, in our Lord Jesus Christ, whose face shines upon us that we may be saved. Well, we say we have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. This salvation is a vibrant, dynamic, lifelong process. Now, we talked about yesterday how justification is not a process. It's definitive. When we trust in Christ, if your hope and trust is in Him, you have right now and forever a perfect standing before God because Christ's righteousness is imputed to you, your sin having been imputed to Him. You have that, and you have it of a certainty. But we do speak also of salvation in the broader sense, encompassing justification and then that sanctification and that perseverance all the way through to glorification, salvation in its fullness. And it's all of grace because it's all of God. That's really what this psalm is telling us. This particular prayer, just notice this, Psalm 80 contains no explicit expression of penitence. Now, this afternoon, I'm preaching in Abbotsford, URC, particularly on repentance. But this psalm, though it cries out for restoration though it acknowledges God's just anger and wrath against the sin of the people, does not contain a particular expression as such of penitence or repentance. As we say, the psalm acknowledges the just anger of God, and because of that, it implies that there's been, fat, there's been past unfaithfulness on the part of God's people. But in this psalm, our repentance, which is surely needed, is not in focus. The prayer's single focus is God and a plea for Him to do for us what only He can. The psalm, in other words, is a witness that the congregation must, in the long last and in all of our extremity, whatever difficulties we may be experiencing and going through, we must in all of our extremity look away from even our own repentance to wait upon God to show us mercy and to look to Him alone expectantly for it. And so each of these verses grows from 3 to 7 to 19 as God is referred to as, O God in verse 3, O God Almighty in verse 7, and O Lord God Almighty. There's a focus here that is entirely upon God. The congregation is coming before God and saying, Restore us, O God. 
cause your face to shine. That is to say, bless us by the means of grace. Make everything effective and effectual to us. Empower by your Spirit that which you have ordained so that we may be saved, so that all the work of Christ done for us may be fully applied to us and we enjoy that in full measure. Yes, we need to repent and yes, we need to believe, but what's in focus here is not that even so much as simply you are our Savior and we look to you alone to save us and to have mercy upon us. We are, after all, the work of God in the first place. He brought us into the flock. He planted us as a vine. We don't make ourselves sheep. He does that. It's His gracious work. He brings us into His church because He cares for us. He plants us as a vine because He loves us. Even with all of our difficulty as sheep, even with all of the extraneous matter that needs to be cut out as we're His vine. Yet He is the one who has brought us in the flock and made us the planting of the Lord. He, in other words, began this work. And I would say as I look at your blessed faces, as Paul said to those in Philippi, being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the confidence we have, that He who has begun a good work will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so let us do all that we do in utter reliance on Him. Here's the point. You see, we don't ever grow out of grace, though I sometimes think we think we do. We speak of growing in grace. It doesn't matter how long you've been a believer. You need to grow in grace. In fact, the mark of Christian maturity is not some sort of independence from the Lord, but a greater sense than ever of your dependence on God. The greatest Christians that I've ever been privileged to know in my life were those who were most evidently dependent on the Lord, trusting in the Lord, recognizing Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, as the hymn writer said. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's Christian maturity. Not, thank you, Lord, I can take it from here. That's folly. You can't take one step without Him. You're utterly dependent on Him. And He's delighted to aid you. He wants to hear you cry, Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine. Not just take things for granted. Not take the preaching of the Word for granted. Not take the administration of the sacraments for granted. Oh, it's time for the preaching of the Word. This is your God speaking to you. We as Reformed believe that the preaching of the Word of the Lord is the Word of the Lord. It's God speaking powerfully to His people. We need the Spirit to take it home to each heart. We need the Spirit to aid the minister and to aid the hearer. Pray that God's face would shine as He you come to the 
font today as there is a holy baptism administered in your presence. What a blessed thing. What a beautiful thing. God's saying how He loves us. Let us do then all that we do in reliance, in utter reliance on Him, looking especially to be fed by the means that He's appointed, crying day and night during our pilgrim journey here below, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause Your face to shine upon us that we may be saved. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, inscribe this, Your holy word, upon our hearts. Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine upon us that we may be saved. And we pray this as those of the new covenant who know that power of the Spirit as of old it was not known, who know it in new covenant dynamic. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.